0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, December 10th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to, what we've been watching. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film managing editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer, White Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. All right, guys. Uh, Chris and Peter are not with us today, but we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're doing a special, a special edition of the water cooler today. We are uh, over the past few weeks, we have been trying uh, desperately, in some cases, to catch up with a lot of the movies that we've missed so far in 2020. And despite, uh, you know, what. Several people may tell you on the street. Uh, hopefully, you're not actually not talking to anybody in the street right now because there's still a pandemic going on. But you know, the, the it seems to me that like there's a a perception out there that no movies came out this year. And yes, a ton of movies were delayed. But uh, this podcast is here to um, <laughs> dispel you of that notion that no movies came out in 2020 because we have a lot of things to talk about. So we're we're scrapping all of our discussion about film and TV and what we've been eating and playing and and reading and all that kind of stuff and just drilling down into the 2020 content that we've been catching up with. So uh, with all of that said, let's go ahead and and just jump right into it. Um, Brad, you and I watched Boys State. Uh, Let's let's go to you first. What did you think about that one?
1: Uh, I really like this documentary a lot, and it was something that I was kind of dreading because uh, obviously... Political discourse and politics at large have been uh, a nightmare for the past four years, for obvious reasons, and this year has been infinitely worse since it's an election year. And since this documentary follows um, a, a group of young teens who are participating in this um, mock government exercise in in Texas, it's it's something sanctioned by the American Legion that actually takes place all over the country, uh, where groups of teenage boys uh, around 17, 18 years old get together and have a a mock campaign and election process for city, state, and um, local governments. And so it's it's supposed to be a learning exercise for them to see how the political process works and uh, have them exercise a lot of the skills required to usually partake in in these campaigns and become elected to uh, a government position. And so, because it takes place in Texas, a notoriously red state, and because it deals with you know high testosterone teenage boys, I was a bit like, "Oh, this is going to be a nightmare." Um, and in part, it is uh, because there's a lot of things that you expect, but then there's also a surprising, inspiring half of this movie that you don't really expect, and it's the one thing expect, and it's the one thing that gives you um, hope—not just for you know the next generation, but just for you know politics at large. You hope that people can still learn something, even though everyone seems to be so set, set in their ways. Um, and you you get to see in this documentary how one kid uh, named Stephen Garza, who um, is more progressive, not quite uh, right wing, doesn't really fit in with a lot of the ideals that um, a lot of people in Texas seem to uphold, even though there have been some changes there to more liberal policies in, in recent years. Um, you see him really like make headway and like convince some of these people that maybe there aren't you know such uh, you know evil perspectives on on their the opposing side. Um, this is somebody who you know makes a push for universal gun law, um, gun registration laws and background checks, as opposed to you know flat out you know saying they want to ban guns and whatnot. And it appeals to the, the this other side while making them feel like they aren't losing their rights. But he, he doesn't do it in a way that is pandering. He's very honest and he speaks from his heart and with a lot of integrity. Um, and he convinces some of these people who are a lot more radical and vocal about their perspectives to listen to him and to rely on him as a leader in this this mock campaign and, and government situation. And you just you just get to see you know what can be done when people aren't just yelling at each other and mudslinging because his opponents definitely try to take uh, shots at him and bring him down. Um, but his response is very graceful and eloquent, and it's just it, it gives you some semblance of hope that. Politics doesn't always have to be this crazy nightmare um, and that maybe the, the next generation of leaders are learning from all of the mistakes that all of the old, you know, people who should have their terms limited um, have all the mistakes they've been making all these years. And hopefully we can, you know, make some improvements in our, our political system and our government.
0: Yeah, I agree with uh, pretty much every single thing you said there. I I found this movie um, alternatingly disturbing and occasionally hopeful. I think uh, it has a lot of really terrifying things in it in terms of like how, um, you know, I think there's a, I don't remember where I heard this, but I, I feel like, uh, I may have heard this on another podcast or something. Somebody brought up this idea that, like, um, you know, there's a perception out there that, like, oh, once all the the old racist people, uh, you know, die off, everything's going to be fine. Once you know stuff gets passed down, uh, power gets passed down to the younger generation. And this movie shows that that's not necessarily true because the uh, the use of social media in order to you know as like a a campaign tactic and and how to spread information or in this case misinformation about. Uh, candidates and things like that um is really ramped up and there's a lot of like meme usage and stuff and this is a, a group of you know we're talking about teenage boys here so um you know when i was a teenager i would never have wanted uh my behavior to be preserved in in you know on, on celluloid for people to watch and and uh examine but like um so uh, th- th- that raises another point like this movie i thought a lot about like the idea of performance and like how much of what these kids are saying and doing and the the policies that they're espousing are things that they actually truly believe and how much they think they're spo- they're supposed to believe um and one of the candidates uh, for the the fake governor position even says, like, you know, at one point in the movie, like, I don't actually believe this stuff. I'm just saying this because I think that this is what people want to hear. And so there's this really fascinating um, loop that goes on there. It's like, okay, are you saying it because you think that they want to hear it, and then are they? only acting like they want to hear it because they think they're supposed to, you know what I'm saying? Like there's this, yeah. there's this uh circular sort of logic that, that you can get stuck in. And, and the scary part to me is that like, these are people who are being trained to be, to, to enter our real political world. This whole movie is fake, but the ideas behind it are very real. And, and I'm, Kind of worried that uh, that a lot of the behaviors on exhibit here, even though they are from seventeen-year-old boys, and we have to hope that uh, things will get a little bit more mature as they grow a little bit older, um, that a lot of the the mentalities at play here will continue on into you know our real American political system. Um, so that's that's the scary stuff. And then, as you mentioned, yeah, there's a lot of hopeful stuff too. I thought the Stephen Garza character is is like one of the best. "Quote unquote" movie characters of 2020 because he speaks so f- much from the heart and and uh, actually seems to um, somehow cut through all the bullshit and and actually make a genuine impact on a lot of the people who were there uh, at this um, it, you know attending this event with him. Um, so I think yeah, th- there's definitely you know cause for some hope. It's a really fascinating movie, and um, I-, I was very impressed also with like the level of access that they were able, able to get. Like they're so you know, right up in the the, the business of everybody and, and, you know, talking about the idea of performance and stuff, you have to wonder how much the camera affected them, uh, you know, when they were making some of these decisions too. Like they're not only performing for their fellow people, but they're performing for, you know, potentially however many people are going to watch this movie. I, al- um, I
1: also wondered how um, the director's, figured out who they were going to follow. Like if it's something that they did like in the lead, the lead up to the actual event by talking to people who were applying for, um, you know, doing this because it's something that you have to like be approved for by uh, like a, a board that- at the American Legion, like there's a whole mm-hmm. interview process and everything. And I wondered if they, if they picked people based on like what they heard in the beginning or m- maybe even more people and then slowly started to narrow it down as the, the story started, you know, Coming out as they were recording everybody, because it's it, it feels like it would have been really hard to have su- such a cohesive story like this in a documentary um, without ha- having so so many more cameras and potential subjects.
0: Yeah, I think um, Jesse Moss, who's one of the directors, uh, was a guest on uh, David Chen, who hopes, hosts the Slash Film podcast. He has another podcast called Culturally Relevant, and uh, he spoke with Jesse Moss about that very topic. That was one of the things they talked about, and I, I think the case was that they they interviewed people sort of like, before the American Legion interviewed them and they found people who they thought would be great candidates to follow. And they it wasn't just luck that they stumbled into you know, following the people that they did. They, they nice. sort of did uh, some prep work there. Um, maybe I'll, I'll try to link to uh, Dave's interview with, with the director uh, in the show notes if people are interested in more about that. But yeah, Boy State is available on Apple TV Plus right now. And um, Brad, you would recommend it, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something you should go out of your way to, to watch. Um, I'm not necessarily
1: sure it's worth... And a full Apple TV Plus subscription since it's just one movie, but um, yeah, I mean, if if you happen to have Apple TV Plus, then you should definitely watch. Yeah, it. and you can uh,
2: watch Ted Lasso too. So, <laughs> uh, Ben and Brad, I have a question. Yes. I have not seen this movie yet because I live in Texas, and uh, the discourse on display in this movie is something I deal with every single day. And um, I know I will see it before end of the year stuff because because it's apparently great, as you say. Uh, but I'm curious if either of you have seen uh, Jesse Moss's other big documentary, The Overnighters, uh, which has a similar level of how do they get this type access. Unfortunately, I have not. Um, Brad, have you seen that? I have not either. Anyway, uh, if you want a a super depressing double feature about life in the United States, I think Boy State and The Overnighters, uh, Jesse Moss seems to have his, his finger on that particular pulse. Okay. All
0: right. Uh, Jacob, let's go to you. You and I watched a movie called Freaky, which we've talked about on the podcast
2: before. Um, What did you make about this one? Yeah, Freaky's great. Uh, This is Christopher Landon's movie. He did uh, the fifth and best Paranormal Activity movie, Uh, and he uh, made the Happy Death Day movies, including the sequel. And Freaky is a body swap movie. It's Vince Vaughn, the serial killer, this uh, Jason Voorhees-esque hulking menace who we get to see being a full-on 80s slasher killer complete with mask in the opening scene. Like, smashing through walls, ripping people in half, just being a total nightmare. And through a magical dagger, switches bodies with a teenage girl. I'll play by Catherine Newton, who you may know from Big Little Lies. And for the bulk of the movie, uh, Vince Vaughn is playing uh, this 15-year-old girl, and Catherine Newton is playing the serial killer, both in the wrong bodies. And it's very, very funny. But perhaps the most surprising thing about Freaky is that it's not a joke. It has jokes, and it has lots of humor. uh, But it takes its characters and its situation seriously enough that it has actual weight and emotion to it. And there are genuine pathos playing out. And Vince Vaughn, probably never better here than he is playing a 15-year-old girl in a 6 foot 4 serial killer's body. <laughs> uh, ben, do you agree? Uh, I can't say that I do. Um, I was a really, really
0: big fan of the Happy Death Day movies, which are, are the films that Christopher Landon did right before this. And I was, you know, I know that people love this movie. I feel like I'm kind of the outlier. I... I uh, was a little cold on this one. I, I felt like um, Vince Vaughn did great work. I, I still prefer him in you know things like uh, Wedding Crashers and Old School and stuff like that. Um, he he did a great job, but I I feel like uh, Catherine Newton, who is the uh, the I guess young female lead who ends up uh, playing the the, <laughs> the transported serial killer, like the serial killer personality transports into her body, so she spends most of the movie uh, playing this killer. I thought she was you know okay but kind of got the short shrift on that deal because the character the the serial killer that that Vince Vaughn originally inhabits is so um, robotic and uh, bland as a character that she ends up getting saddled with that persona for the whole movie and it didn't really give her much to do it felt more like she was she had studied Robert Patrick's work as the T-1000 in Terminator 2 and was just doing that the whole movie instead of um, you know, having, uh, uh, much of a personality to, to, uh, to build on beyond that. I, I did like how, uh, Catherine Newton's, um, it's hard to talk about this movie because <laughs> there, there's the actors and the characters that they're playing and then they swap. So it gets all confusing. But, um, when she is the serial killer, there are moments where she is able to, uh, manipulate the environments around her, um, and, and sort of prey on people's, uh, willingness to help out a young teenage girl in a compromising position, even though in the reality of this movie, she is actually a 50-year-old man <laughs> in this moment. Um, whereas the the Vince Vaughn as the young girl uh, character seemed completely oblivious to being able to use the strengths of being in that new body uh, in a way that would be beneficial to his situation. So I don't know. There, I, I don't know. I guess I got caught up. I got hung up on, um, some of the, the character stuff and some of the choices and, and, um, motivations and things, and just ended up not having as much fun with this one as I think a lot of other people did. Um, but I, I definitely recognize that I'm an outlier in that scenario. So yeah, Ben, um, you're wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I, I personally, Catherine Newton, uh, trying to embody the ice cold killer we see in the opening scenes in the movie is really fun. I think it really does work. And there are moments where uh, she's trying to like obliterate other human beings in the way that she could, or he could early in the film and realizing, Oh, I know the strength of a teenage girl. I can no longer burst through walls or rip body parts off. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really funny reaction thoughts there. And, and it also is a really funny moment where Vince Vaughn as the girl, uh, accidentally uses his strength to hurt, hurt one of his friends and is really surprised by his own strength. So I, I disagree. I think, I think that's, I think the movie's a complete package. It's actually a contender for my top 10 of the year.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, it certainly has its moments. I just, I know that the praise for, around this one is, is pretty rapturous. Um, and I just was not, uh, I, I would say it's not in, in contention for my top 10 of the year, but, um, you know, the, I, I think they're I think the listeners to this podcast will find a lot to enjoy about it. I, I found a lot to enjoy about it. I just wasn't like, uh, as fully in love with it as people like you. And and I know Chris uh, really likes this movie a lot too. So um, that is freaky. I believe it's available for rent right now. Um, let's move on to our next movie, which is Nomadland. Uh, Brad, you and I watched this one. Uh, what did you make of Nomadland? I'll let you go first since you took second in these first two ones okay uh i okay so this movie um was directed by chloe Zhao, who also wrote and edited and produced the film uh i have not seen her uh earlier work i know she directed a movie called the rider a couple of years ago that um, made the uh film festival circuit and and was very you know well acclaimed at that time I've, I've not had the chance to catch up with that film yet but um this movie is very quiet it's very low-key it's uh a movie about Frances mcdormand she plays this this uh woman named Fran who, uh, basically loses everything. She, her husband passes away and, uh, she just gets completely hammered by the great recession and ends up, uh, moving into a van and just driving around the country and working in, in little places here and there and sort of joining this community of other people who have been similarly, um, you know their lives have essentially been decimated because of the the economic uh, losses that they've suffered. Um so it's a, it's a movie about loss in a lot of ways, it's a movie about connection, it's a movie about uh, resilience and I thought uh, Frances McDormand was just wonderful in this movie. Um she I think when it it originally was uh screening for people and and um you know making the the festival rounds earlier this year there was a lot of talk about how she might win best actress at the Oscars and um I don't know how much uh state you know how much uh, value i put in those conversations especially this early when the oscars are not happening until you know months and months from now because it's a such a weird year uh but man i, I th- thought she was tremendous in this movie and um it's such a, a quiet movie that is unlike a lot of the you know loud bombastic stuff that that comes out of american cinema these days so i really appreciated the change of pace it's a little slower than um then, yeah, like I said, you know, a majority of the movies that you might see in a given year. But I think the the slow pace there and the the really um, contemplative work and and uh, uh, like passion of these characters and and the, um, you know, sh- pulling the curtain back on a community that we have n- I have never seen on film before um, resulted in a really uh, unique and and. um fulfilling cinematic experience. So what did you think, Brad? Yeah, I felt
1: the exact same way, especially digging into this, uh, like you said, this community that hasn't really been seen on the big screen before. And and just to make sure that I wasn't uh, short-sighted in that assessment, I went to look up and see if there were any other movies about nomads and things like that. And there's there's not really much of anything out there, even even in documentary form. Um, the, you know, the nomad community, these, these people who, you know, hop from place to place in these vans, you know, um, equipped with, you know, little mini kitchenettes and like essentially they've turned their, their vehicle into a a, a tiny home. Um, and that's, that was the most fascinating thing for me. And at times it's, it feels so naturalistic that it almost feels like a documentary. And, and a big part of that I found is because, um, three of the, the friends that Fern, uh, makes while she's you know, going across the country are actual real nomads. Um, and that's that's a big part of what makes the, everything feel so uh, genuine, just listening to them talk. And it's it's just, uh, it really is mesmerizing to just watch how all these people live and how they're perfectly, um, you know, con- content with, with that life. And I think that's one of the things I found most beautiful about it is without being uh, preachy or like, actively trying to convince anybody, it kind of makes you think about the the lifestyles that we try to lead and the things that we're compelled to do, like, you know, buy, buy a big house and, and have all these things. And um, you know, like I'm, I'm definitely, you know, one of those people I, I want to own a house when I, I have tons of things that I, I don't need that I buy all the time, you know, toys and, and nonsense and things like that. And you, even though obviously Frances McDormand's character has hit this uh, rough patch and is, she's, you know, living this life that feels like it's uh destitute and, and, and whatnot. It's, it's clear that it's something that she she is maybe more uh, content with than you you anticipate. And if you felt yourself like feeling sorry for her, I think by the end of the movie, you almost appreciate what she likes about her life and why she's so, you know, hesitant to go back to, you know, a, a lifestyle where she is stuck in one place. Um, and I think that there's a beautiful contrast between, uh, the, the life that she's living and the, the potential life that that's out there that comes from a, another friend that she makes on the road, David Strathairn, um, who I think we all need more of in many more movies. But, uh, yeah, this was just, um, I, I really, really like this movie, movie, and I think that it's, uh, it's quietly beautiful.
3: I just Definitely. want to chime in here and say that if you want to see other movies, uh, that kind of in some way tackle that the, that nomadic lifestyle, and nomadic community, I would recommend the films of Agnes Varda. Um, she doesn't have films that like specifically tackle this type of lifestyle, but her films like uh, The Gleaners and I, Faces, Places, show glimpses of those kind of um, people, as well as her uh, scripted drama Vagabond. So those are a good way to get into more of those things into more of that like lifestyle uh, that we can see on screen, although it's not quite as extensive as Nomadland.
0: Agnès Barta is a huge blind spot for me. I've never—I don't think I've ever seen any of her work, and I, so I definitely need to take you up on, on that advice, HD. Um, Brad, were you as uh, as sort of baffled as I was, or or impressed, or I don't know what the word would be um, when you realized that Clojat, who who directed this, like we were just talking about, very quiet. Contemplative movie is going to be directing a Marvel movie next. Like, can you even imagine what Eternals is going to be like based on you know with this as the as the foundational uh, text before that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And and like, and I actually looked online to um, look more into her career to see if there was anything else that she had directed that like gave an inkling of her um, you know skills as a blockbuster filmmaker or you know even desires. And so, and I you know didn't see anything that you know gave gave that impression. So I'm I'm very interested to see. What she does with a a property like this, because it's it's fascinating, you know, that that Marvel took a director who makes, like you said, such quiet, reserved movies, you know, to make a a big sci fi cosmic spectacle. Uh,
0: So yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what, what she does in that arena. I think Nomadland might be available um, on certain rental places just for like the next couple of days. And then I know it's supposed to be getting sort of a wider release in February. So um, if you're interested in, in checking that out, um, then you might just have to do a little extra searching to see if you can find out if it's playing, uh, you know, virtually um, or or streaming or or rentable somewhere right now. But uh, let's move on. HT, you and I watched a movie called The Sound of Metal, which is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. What did you think about this one?
3: Sound of Metal uh, snuck up on me. I kind of went into it mostly expecting a really fantastic Riz Ahmed performance because that's what I've been hearing from the raves about this movie, as well as the sound design, because it's a movie about a heavy metal drummer who uh, loses his hearing and has to deal with suddenly being a deaf, disabled person. And so I was expecting something that was like technically good with some good performances, but I was really blown away by this movie. It really affected me in a way that I didn't expect to because of its... very sensitive and tender depiction of a person who has built his life, his um, mental well-being around this one passion. And when he's cut off from that, he just feels so untethered and loose from the world. And he's not given a a path back or a clear path back to what he had known before. And he just starts spiraling. And um, I just found that really, really compelling and really moving. And Riz Ahmed, again, is just incredible in this movie he's just like a wild uncaged animal in some parts uh especially when he's dealing with that rage and that helplessness of his um on like deaf onset and deafness onset and then in the quieter moments too when he starts to learn how to appreciate the stillness um, as his sort of uh, mentor tell uh, tries to teach him but still kind of has that restlessness about him and um, it's just a really, really fantastic, moving story. Uh, and um, I want to give a shout out, too, to um, Paul Ratchy. Is it Paul Racy? I, I don't know how to pronounce his name.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, who is just
3: so warm and such a really, really great presence in this film. Uh, he plays Joe, who is the the leader of this community of um, recovering like, addicts. Uh, who are all deaf and he accepts uh, Riz Ahmed's character into this community and basically tries to teach him how to be deaf and how to make peace with his new situation and uh, gosh he's just he's like almost steals the movie from Riz Ahmed for Mm -hmm. a little bit he's so good and I was just um I was really really moved by this film and um I think that it would probably make my my top 10. It's one of my favorites of the year so far. And um, I, I know that like the last act of the film uh, gets a little bit unwieldy. It feels like a, it kind of loses the thread a little bit, but I think it it's really does suit um, the, uh, the dilemma that Riz Ahmed's character is going through that he does kind of, he does himself like lose the thread. He doesn't really know what to do. He's at a loss. And I love that we are able to sit with him in that loss. And um, just kind of feel it as he's going through it, uh, not just through the incredible sound design, which does an amazing job of um, capturing that deaf, like that hearing loss and that de- that silence and everything and sort of the um, the uncomfortable, stagnating silence at that. Uh, it's just, uh, it's incredible. I, I love Sound of Metal.
0: Yeah, I was a big, big fan of it too, and I think I was pretty much exactly the same as you. I kind of watched it because I thought that it was going to be, you know, an awardsy kind of movie, but I was not expecting it to have that that level of emotional impact that it did. And um, man, I mean, <laughs> like, I really can't say enough about how incredible he is in this movie. Like, all of the emotions that just play across his face. It's like, and, and the, the the simple premise of this movie too, like, you know, a a heavy metal drummer who suddenly loses his hearing. And like, that is his life. That's all that he has. And like the, the, this relationship that he's in, he's, he's uh, in a relationship with the other member of his band. Um, And, and just, it makes you think about like your own life and, and not only, you know, just makes you appreciate your own hearing, but really puts you in that headspace of like what kind of tailspin uh, might, might occur if you're so untethered from or suddenly untethered from the one thing that as that defines your entire personality it's really like provocative storytelling i think and then just the the humanity that's on display um as you uh you know follow his character through this journey and then the um you know meeting the these members of the deaf community which is a big part of the second act um yeah i just found it all very uh yeah moving and and um surprisingly powerful for a movie that that sort of seems like a you know when it's one line um you know log line description, it, it sort of seems like, oh I, you know i I kind of get what this movie is, but i I felt like it was a it was a much more human film than you know the a one line description of it could indicate. Agreed. so
3: it's very soulful, I think.
0: Yeah, um, and this one's on Amazon right now for everybody to watch. So it's it's yeah, uh, I think H and I both give it a very very high recommendation. So um, the, hopefully this whole and this whole episode will serve as um, you know a a, a, a uh, smorgasbord of recommendations for people to um, to catch up on a bunch of stuff. So. Uh, let's move to our next film, which is Possessor. Uh, Brad, you and I watched this one. I, I watched a ton of movies this week, guys. Um, Brad, what did you think about Possessor? This movie is fucked up.
1: Um, <laughs> I think uh, Jacob talked about this movie before, and it's um, it's directed by Brian Cronenberg, who is David Cronenberg's son, which gives you some idea of what to expect because, in this case, the uh, apple does not fall far from the tree. Uh, this is a um, very very visceral and and, and violent experience Uh, some of the most gruesome violence i've seen in a while that really just unsettled me you know um the 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 movie follows um this uh company organization where they have assassins who are employed through the mind of other people to carry out uh these killings um to influence you know corporate espionage what what have you Um, And it's a very heady sci-fi thriller because the the assassin in question, played by Andrea Riceboro, uh, she's starting to lose it a little bit. She's um, unstable, seems to have this fascination with uh, gruesome death and not carrying out the assassination in the clean way that the company has uh, encouraged her to do so. And so when she uh, has a a big job that comes up, um, puts her in in the body of um, Christopher Abbott, Um, that's, I think that's his name, right? Christopher Abbott. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's not a good recipe for her, uh, psychology. And as she unravels, um, it makes, uh, Christopher Abbott's character unravel. And it's, uh, just a very trippy, surreal kind of experience. There's lots of, um, you know, abstract flashes of, of imagery throughout it and the visualization of how, um, Andrew Riceborough's character and Chris Rabbit's character are 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 one, and like how the their minds are becoming so twisted um, and mixed with each other, um, it's it's very compelling. And like it's this is one of those movies where like I don't feel like I'll ever feel compelled to watch it again, but I'm so glad that I watched it because uh, it is it is such a an unnerving um, movie, and it, like it, it really does stick with you in, in a haunting way. Um, I, I think it's been two days since I've watched it. And like every now and then I just keep thinking about certain shots in it and just some of the, the violent imagery and it's just, um, it sticks with you and it's, yeah, I, I was very disturbed by this movie. Um, and it's, but it's, it's very, very good.
0: Yeah, I thought uh, Christopher Abbott, who is the the actor who plays essentially like the the character that Andrea Riseborough's assassin inhabits, um, he is sort of. I mean, Andrea Riseborough is the main character, but since she is sort of inside Christopher Ab- Christopher Abbott for most of the movie, he is kind of like the main. Um, the main character that you follow for most of the story. And I have not seen him in a ton of things, uh, but I thought he was exceptional in this movie and Riseboro, You know, she's been great for what decades at this point. Like, I I don't know when she started acting, but I feel like the first time I saw her, I was just like, this woman is incredible. And then everything I've seen her in, even if she just has small roles, she always elevates pretty much everything she's in. So I was great. I, I was, you know, glad to see her get, uh, you know, a starring role here. Um, but man, yeah, this movie is just freaking brutal. Like, I, I mean, the the violence in it. Maybe people uh, who you know uh, drown themselves in in horror movies all day, every day, will be a little bit more. Um, I don't know, uh, immune to some of the the visceral nature of of the crimes that are committed on full display in this movie. But uh, since I don't spend too much time watching horror movies and and things like that, this movie really. Uh, I think it had its its intended effect on me. Yeah, let me, um, let me say
2: Ben uh, as a the big horror guy on this podcast since Chris is absent. Uh most horror movie violence is intended to be entertaining in some fashion, whether it is, you know, action-packed or gross or funny. The violence in the Possessor is framed to be as upsetting as possible. It is not a horror movie violence as much as it is uh an attempt to recreate actual violence and it yeah, it is as deeply upsetting as anything I've seen in any horror movie. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's Man. yeah, it's so real. That's the thing cuz like even in horror movies, like, you know, things where there's excess torture and, you know, dismembering and things like that, it it feels like cinema. And the, the and like even though this movie is very cinematic, it's just the way it's presented, it just feels so real, realistic, and that that's what makes it so unnerving.
0: Man, and the the premise of this movie, like the is maybe one of the best premises that i have heard of in in the 20th century or 21st century so far i feel like the idea of like you know just imagining you know my wife the person i love the most on this planet walking into this room right now and just murdering me in the most gruesome way and then killing herself and like what that uh scene would look like to the outside world and knowing that it wasn't actually her it was somebody else controlling her body that is just such a like uh, profoundly unsettling idea and and such a great idea for a genre film. Um, and Cronenberg just ramps, he takes full advantage of that premise. Um, I'm actually surprised that, that
1: this concept wasn't used for a, a bigger sort of like blockbuster style movie or, or, or even something that's a little bit more, um, you know, entertaining, like Upgrade, you know, because Upgrade has plenty mm-hmm. of, you know, gnarly violence too, but that's framed as, you know, a, an entertaining sci-fi action movie. But I, I, and right. I think it works, you know, better as this because it digs much more into the, the psychology of it all as opposed to just making it, you know, mindless entertainment. Yeah, I made a yeah, th- and
2: joke I... about this on Twitter, um, but I, I kind of mean it, which is the idea that in many ways Possessor is a film about how when you work remotely, uh, you are distancing yourself from reality in some ways. And it's really as a film about a woman who works remotely as a murderer and she grows disconnected from her work in a way that uh, makes her not only inefficient at her work, but creates messes for everybody. And I, it feels very modern, very 2020 in that way.
0: Yeah, and without giving anything away, I think the ending really speaks to that idea specifically, Jacob. Um, the, like, the very end of the movie, um, I think, really hammers home that that concept uh, in, a, in a very direct way. So, um, man, Possessor is a... It's a brutal movie, and I, I don't think I can, like, recommend it to anybody, especially people who have, like, uh, you know, very small children or something. Obviously, don't, like, let your young, young kids watch this movie because it's freaking gory as hell. But, um, you know, people who... You have to be in the right headspace to watch this, I think. And, um, I feel like it's going to take a lot of people off guard if they're just like clicking around mindlessly through iTunes or something. And they're like, oh yeah, let's check this out. Like this is, this is not that movie. You sort of have to steal yourself, I think, to, to watch this, but, um, but you should watch it. If you're an adventurous
2: cinephile, if you are listening to this and are intrigued, uh, right now we're four for four on people who watch this on this podcast and are, and walked away with something to say about it, uh. You'll be hearing about this on our end of the year podcast and in our best moments of the year podcast, I am bringing a list of moments from this movie to argue for to get at least one of them on the damn list. Uh, so if you don't want to so watch this so you can enjoy those spoilers, because we'll be talking spoilers on this movie uh, at the end of year content for sure. Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. Uh, let's go to uh, Mank. H.C., you and I watched David Fincher's new movie, Mank. What did you think about Mank?
3: Thought it was fine.
0: <laughs> I, me too.
3: I, I did not love Mink and I was very excited for this film because an, I mean any new David Fincher film uh is cause for excitement for me. And I expected it to be less Finchery because of the reviews. Um and it really doesn't feel like a Fincher film at all. Um and it's because this is a film that's very much in deep conversation with Citizen Kane. Uh, there are very it's been a while since I've seen Citizen Kane so I can't point can't point out like the obvious like parallels and everything but there are um, in structural and narrative ways that this film both echoes and is in conversation with Citizen Kane which was interesting but felt very much like a cinephile being like hey remember Citizen Kane and (laughs) well let's uh, talk about how important screenwriting is Uh, which is fine but um, something that it was just something that didn't really connect with me in a way that um, I'm sure it does for many people, but I just uh, couldn't really bring myself to love it that much. Um, But it is a really well-made film. The performances are great. I will say, though, I think Gary Oldman, you know, miscasting discussions aside, I think he's just doing a role that we've seen him do so many times, that of the uh, put-upon turmoil genius who uh, is prone to bombastic fits of... I don't know.
0: Outbursts.
3: (laughs) Outbursts. Bombastic outbursts. Displays of his genius. That kind of thing. And so it wasn't a very interesting performance to me because we've seen him do it so many times before. But I will say Amanda Seyfried is great in this movie. She is just... she, She does the... The Hollywood, classic Hollywood ditzy blonde, in a way that feels so much more layered and interesting, and a little bit world weary. And I really, really liked her performance. I could have just watched her the entire time, Um, and every time she showed up, I was like, (laughs) much more interested. And a lot of this movie, I was kind of waiting for the movie to start, if that makes sense, like the Mm -hmm, story mm -hmm. to start. And it starts in like the last half hour, and once it does, it's kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I did appreciate some surprise cameos, which I guess I won't spoil here because a lot of people don't know about it yet. And I'm sorry to the other Slash Home staffers who I spoiled it to. Um, (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) Mink.
2: Yeah,
0: Um, I'm I'm in the same boat. I uh, also appreciated Amanda Seyfried's character. I I thought she did a great job. I think, um, I don't know, even after Chris talked about this movie and sort of reset my expectations, I still was surprised at how... Uh, little the movie actually seems to care about the making of Citizen Kane, which is what I, you know, in the you know, months leading up to this movie thought the whole thing was about. And it's definitely not about that. Um, it's so much more interested in like... Uh, socialism and like uh, local California politics. Like they spend a huge chunk of the movie talking about the 1934 uh, California gubernatorial election, um, which I, I just, I mean, I I think Chris talked about that and, and was surprised about that, but just like the the difference between hearing him say it and then seeing how much time is devoted to that. And like the way that, uh, that Herman Mankiewicz talks about those ideas and, and, Goes back and forth with a lot of uh other big name people in Hollywood and how um, the movie is is more about like exerting political influence over the world than and and you know through entertainment than um you know the, the actual uh nuts and bolts of writing or or producing Citizen Kane uh was still just kind of shocking to me. And I, I also my wife and I were talking about this right after we finished watching it. Like who is this movie for aside from like us, like, you know, cinephiles and people who, um, you know, uh, have a working knowledge of citizen Kane and like 1930s Hollywood and, and all of that stuff. Like, I just can't imagine, uh, a quote unquote, normal viewer, you know, a general audience person, just like, all right, I, I guess I'll check out David Fincher's new movie and coming away from this movie, uh, sufficiently entertained or like, um, (laughs) with anything other than just like a massive question mark, just floating over their skull. (laughs) Um, so I I don't know, I I don't, it's another one where it's sort of like hard for me to recommend because I feel like I didn't connect with it on a super emotional level. I was just like, Oh, those are fun little nods and winks to like, you're saying, HD, like the, the structure and the, you know there are some citizen kane isms like mixed throughout um, and you can draw some allegories and stuff uh you know throughout the movie to the way that that mankowitz is portrayed and and you know how he gets his ideas for for those movies uh or, or for that script rather um but it, it's just it's like and it's not just Easter egg the movie I don't want to make it sound like that because it's definitely not that but just the the uh the sort of wtfness of it I, I just came away like Wow, that was not the movie that I thought it was, and and I already had my expectations tweaked before I went in. So uh take that, take take what take of that what you will, if if anything. I'm sorry for rambling, but um I don't know if that resonates with anybody else. Uh uh Brad and Jacob, are you guys planning to watch Mank? Are you
2: interested in this movie at all? I am indeed going to watch Mank this weekend and report back. It is part of my massive list of things to do. Uh, But I'll just be honest with you guys, I was not prepared for a two-hour-plus black-and-white David Fincher movie about the making of Citizen Kane or not, and uh, California politics this week. It's just been one of those weeks, and I realized I could not give this movie of professional attention this week. So that is why I'm currently silent
0: on me. Yeah. 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 yeah I totally. Understand.
1: Yeah. I'm going to do that too. But one of the things I've, I've been wanting to do, even though uh, obviously it's not nearly as much about the making of Citizen Kane is that I, I did want to try to watch Citizen Kane before I watched me just, just mm-hmm. for the sake of it. Uh, so that's why I've been putting it off too.
0: Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Um, I watched Citizen Kane probably I don't know two years ago or something at this point, so it was like kind of fresh, and and so I I feel like I picked up on probably half of the things that one could pick up on if it was much more fresh in your mind.
1: Yeah, so, it's, yeah it's, I, I think you'll get a lot. Yeah, it's been a while too, so I, I really need that refresher.
3: Yeah, roundtable no, real you quick experience. If you uh, watch Citizen Kane beforehand, oh, go ahead, Jacob. Yeah,
2: I want a quick roundtable. Uh, Citizen Kane, guys, yay or nay? <laughs> oh, hell, hell
0: yay. yeah. That's, right. uh, and that's what I talked
2: about yeah. when I watched it on on the podcast. I talked about it on
0: a water cooler like a couple of years ago. I was just like so shocked with how well it holds up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's such a movie that has like this, this burden of weight on its shoulders of like, oh, this is, you know, for decades and decades, this was widely accepted as the greatest movie of all time. And like, I guess the debate has opened up a little bit more uh, in, in recent years, but like, man, that is really like, it, it very well makes its case to be arguably the greatest movie of all time. And not many movies can say that. Yeah. yeah my question yeah. was
2: more of a joke, but at the same time, <laughs> when I, when I, when I do revisit it, it is, uh, it's, it's astonishing how good it is. And that's a crazy thing to say for movie so famous, but it's, it's actually good and not good because people say it's good. It's actually good. Yeah, so, yeah. That's a weird, compared thing to say, but I feel like it needs to be said right now. Damn it!
3: Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I may have Stockholm syndrome when it comes to Citizen Kane, actually, because I did during college in my film class, like write an essay, uh, a, a shot-by-shot essay <laughs> about one of the sequences. It was the montage in the in his mansion with his wife, and I watched that scene like a million times, wow. and I was like, "Wow, this is a piece of genius!" At the end, <laughs> and so it might have to do with the Stockholm syndrome from writing that essay and watching that like two-minute scene for like two weeks.
0: Yeah, I, I also real quick. Um, I think his name is Tom Burke, who plays uh, Orson Wells in this movie. He has a very small part in this film, but I thought he did a great job. He was from um, God, what was the name of that movie that just came out like a year or two ago, the indie film? Um, what is it? I'm looking it up right now. The Souvenir. Um, See, he I was actually, the, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say he was the male lead in in the souvenir and I thought he was uh, a very good Orson Welles in this movie. He was sort of used sparingly and I I wish there was more Welles in it, but I understand why he he appears more as like a a specter instead of a main character.
3: See, I was kind of mixed on him because for me it felt like his performance was almost an impression of Welles and not adding anything interesting apart from just being like, "Oh, that's that's Orson Welles." So, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, I he was minimal enough of a presence and like, it was more about his looming specter than anything. So I, I was fine with that, but um, I was mixed on his performance. I wasn't sure if I liked it or not because of that sort of impression vibe I got from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So HC, let's talk about another movie that you and I watch, which is uh, another round. What did you think about this one? I
3: like this film and this is another sort of low-key movie that i enjoyed for the for, for the majority of it and then the last scene kind of sealed it as being a movie that i i, I just really really liked uh, this is um a movie a danish film directed by thomas vinterberg starring maz mickelson as a sort of meek teacher who, uh, along with several of his colleagues, decides to conduct an experiment uh, based on a study in which this researcher uh, puts forward that uh, every person will ha- is like lacking is underneath like is lacking in like 005 percent of alcohol. So if they maintain a 005 percent uh, BAC, they will like perform at their peak <laughs> peak performances so they start to these these colleagues start to drink during work um only during work not on the weekends and um Mads Mikkelsen basically gets superpowers from from alcohol (laughs) he finds himself more confident more assured uh his relationship between his uh him and his uh, sort of estranged wife starts to be on the mend he is suddenly everyone's favorite teacher And but then, of course, things start to spiral out of control as they uh, begin to overdrink. And it leads to some surprisingly tragic uh, consequences, which I think the film deals with in a way that it in a way that doesn't feel atonal with its sort of dramedy type of approach to this um, this story. It is funny and wry in that. Sort of dry Danish film way, um, but it has a sort of undercurrent of of that melancholy. I think that this sort of film, which you know brushes with the idea of alcoholism, uh, would tackle. And uh, it ends on a really, really, uh, almost strange but wonderful note, in which Mads Mikkelsen uh, engages in a like two minute jazz ballet dance sequence. And I was like, all right, maybe I love this movie. <laughs> so that's another round and uh it's available on VOD I think, now
0: I uh really like this movie because of the ending just like you I think um yeah I, I was enjoying the movie and then yeah that that ending hits um and I I think the ending is one of those that I'm one of those moments that I'm going to argue for in our end of the year oh, uh sure. I'll support list. you um, because it's it's just there's so much to it, and and I don't want to talk about it too much right now because I know a lot of people haven't had the chance to see this yet. But uh, man, it's just a really really uh, fun movie for a lot of it. And then, like you mentioned, there's this, there are these really um, stark moments of melancholy that sort of permeate through. I thought Mad Mikkelsen was doing really excellent, top notch work in this movie. Um, it's such a physical performance from him, like the to be able to modulate that just right throughout this movie as he's hitting these different levels of. Uh, Of being drunk, of drunkenness, basically, um, must have really required a a pretty high level of difficulty. But um, yeah, I I found a lot to enjoy with this movie. It's it's a yeah, it's a weird mix of being like lighthearted and also kind of sad at the same time. Um, So it's called Another Round, and I, I would definitely recommend it. Also, I guess before you watch this, it's I thought it was important to note that throughout the movie, the director notifies the audience of the character's blood alcohol content levels, but the measurement that they use in Danish is not the same as what we use in the U S so on screen, if you see a zero comma eight, that actually translates to 0.08%, which is the legal driving limit in the U S so you may want to, I don't know, just, just don't think it's a one-to-one comparison because uh, if it was, then these characters would be dead. Basically is is what these (laughs) is what the movie sort of, uh, would have you believe so or or what i what a misread of the movie would have you believe so uh that is called another round and um and yeah i think it's definitely worth a watch so okay i'll try to blow through a few of the other things that i've been watching here i I caught up with the old guard which is uh gina prince bythewood's uh, action movie that came out on netflix earlier this year that stars uh, charlie's throne really, really good stuff, guys. I I'm, I missed the entire conversation around this. I don't know what happened. I was just like, I had it in my queue, you know, the, the moment that it debuted in July and just for some reason, never never pushed play on it. Um, but it really felt like the uncompromised vision of a total pro. I feel like this is one of those Netflix movies that does not feel like a Netflix movie. And we've talked about a little bit about this before, how like, you know, a lot of these Netflix films kind of feel designed to like, it's almost like baked in where there's like moments where the filmmakers and the, and the distributor know that you're not going to be paying full attention. Um, so the, the films kind of suffer in quality a little bit. And I didn't feel any of that with this movie. It felt like a pure like a big screen blockbuster experience and like better than a lot of blockbusters that actually are released in, in theaters, even in a year that doesn't have a pandemic in it. So, um, I, I was a, a big, big fan of this movie. I love the characterizations. I love how, uh, real all of these people felt. And there is a moment in the, so it's a, it's about a gang of, uh, immortal warriors basically, and, uh, or a band of immortal, immortal warriors and, uh, Kiki Lane from, um, if Beale Street could talk plays a modern Marine who suddenly realizes that she is immortal and and sort of like joins up with this group. There's a moment um, in the middle of the movie where a, a, uh, a concept is introduced and I'm going to talk about this in, in our end of the year stuff too. um, But the, the death uh, of one of these immortals, like what happens to one of them is one of the most disturbing and, um, and like, Horrifying and thought-provoking things that I can remember seeing in in a long time, uh, and it's it's really um, just yeah, it, it really uh, hit me, uh, it cut me to the quick. So um, oh, yeah, ben, it, it, that
2: moment's on my list too. So you have it, okay, come in your corner.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, just like to think about that is so like devious and horrifying and like kind of uh, brilliant from a storytelling perspective. Like that's the kind of moment that, and, and I'm sorry to like dance around it. Cause I really don't want to spoil it. And I, I think a lot of people should watch this movie because it's great. Um, But that's the kind of moment where I'm like, oh, man, like, God, that's so horrible. But also, like, I kind of love whoever came up with that. In this case, it would be Greg Rucka, who is the uh, writer of the comic on which this is based. And then he also wrote the screenplay, which is kind of a rare thing. But, um, man, uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood, like, give her more action movies. Let her make a sequel to this. Let her do whatever the hell she wants, because uh, she's made more, like, low-key stuff before, like, Beyond the Lights and... Um, love and basketball but this is her first like step up into the big blockbuster realm and i thought she just knocked it out of the park so yeah there's a real um,
2: feminine touch to this movie uh i mean that's like a whole positive I mean, my wife is obsessed with this movie she loves it and talking about it with it it's because she, she likes action but also because there's such an attention to the female characters and how they operate within this world that uh it's subtle and it's there and it's not something a male director i think would have noticed or taken care of yeah, and it's it's something that you don't really see that often, and and it feels so
0: natural in this movie. It's not like um you know that that obnoxious Avengers Endgame moment where like all the female characters gather on the battlefield, and it's like the film is trying to be like, you know, overtly you know try to say something Look, in, in the most like fumbled way possible. Yeah, it, it's just so natural and like uh like as if it not even a thought has been paid to it, which is kind of like the level of normality that you want in stuff like this, instead of like, not everything has to make a big deal out of everything. You can just make a movie where characters have natural relationships with each other and they're women and they can kick ass and all of this stuff without, you know, making it out, out to seem like it's revolutionary um, because that in its own way kind of is revolutionary. So anyway, it, it's really, really great. It's called the old guard. It's on Netflix right now. Uh, I also watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I don't remember if if Chris... Oh, I actually, I do remember because I asked Chris about um, Fences, which is a, a Denzel Washington movie that came out in 2013 that is based on an August Wilson play. And this movie, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, is also based on an August Wilson play. Uh, and it's basically um, a bunch of people in a very contained area... And it's, uh, it's rapid dialogue, back and forth. I love the hypnotic, uh, back and forth, sort of rat-a-tat pacing of this dialogue. There's a lot of dialogue. There are uh, lots of uh, monologues and big speeches from characters. And um, this is Chadwick Boseman's final film. And he is unreal in this movie. Like, I always thought Chaz- Chadwick Boseman was good. I've, I've still yet to see uh, Get On Up and um, the Jackie Robinson movie that he made. What was it called? 42. Uh, so I haven't seen like everything that he's been in, but I've always thought that he was like good. And this movie, I was like, holy shit, like this is, uh, man, I, it it makes his loss hurt so much more. Um, (laughs) and, and it's, it's really, uh, God, it, it just, it hurts. It hurts to, to know that like he was capable of something like this, uh, that is so, um, coiled and, uh, and like raw and powerful, um, I mean, his performance and Viola Davis, who is one of the other stars in the movie, just their work alone is uh, is definitely worth, worth the price of admission, which is nothing because it's going to be on Netflix on December 18th. So eight days from now, you'll, you'll be able to check that one out. Um, I don't want to get too much into it because it's so... Far away still for people, but um, I suspect we're going to be talking a little bit more about Chadwick Boseman in the days to come. So, um, and it'll be well deserved because Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, his his work in this movie is is really like next level shit. So, uh, put that one on your to watch lists for sure. Um, another movie that I don't know that I can recommend uh, as as openly is um, it's called Wild Mountain Time. Uh, guys, is this, this one
3: crazy Irish accents movie.
0: Uh, and so I, I went to Ireland in 2018 and that was a big part of the reason that I wanted to watch this movie was because like, you know, the trailer sort of, it, it has Christopher Walken in it doing an Irish accent. And I was like, all right, uh, I right, don't know about this. Uh, it's a romantic comedy that stars uh, Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan. And I, I watched the trailer and was kind of like, I don't know about the quality of this, but it sure looks really pretty. And there's like tons of shots of the Irish countryside and just like gorgeous landscapes and all that. And I I was like, all right, I want to immerse myself in that world for a little while. Um, Emily Blunt's accent in the trailer kind of seems like she's pushing it a little bit, but she's actually the best part of this film. Uh, And, and, feels totally sort of at home, uh, once you get over the initial, uh, you know, couple lines of, of that accent delivery, Christopher Walken feels completely miscast, uh, throughout the entire thing. (laughs) He's the first voice you hear. And, um, Man, it's a it's a choice to include him in this movie. I have no idea what John Patrick Shanley was thinking. He is the writer and director of this. Uh, he also, I think, wrote um, Moonstruck, which Chris talked about last week and, and HT is a big fan of. I've never seen Moonstruck. Um, but uh, man, this is a weird movie, guys. Um, it, it's basically about uh, Jamie Dornan plays uh, an Irish farmer and uh, Emily Blunt also is an Irish farmer. She lives on the farm next door and it's supposed to be this sort of like star-crossed lovers thing, Um, but the relationship, the main relationship in the film, the the central love story, is so strange that uh, I almost want to recommend it to people just for the freaking weirdness of it. Um, Jacob, I feel like you would like this just because it's so batshit. But everybody else, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can genuinely recommend this because it's just so, so weird. Ben, um, as
2: you compared to Serenity, the uh, Matthew McConaughey movie where the big reveal is that he's, he's actually a character in a fishing video game. Is, is it comparable to that? Because that's what I've been hearing.
0: Oh my God. Okay, so um, it, it's comparable, not in the same way that like, I'll, I'll go ahead and spoil this movie to the degree where I'll tell you that there is not any sort of uh, reveal that happens that like, changes the entire lens through which you see the the film like serenity does that's like one of the most um uh overt and like egregious reveals that i can think of in modern cinema um this movie doesn't have anything like that but it has a character moment a character reveal that uh that sort of tries to fill in some of the motivation that has been severely lacking for the whole movie and you're like this what the hell that is the reason that this character has been acting this way. And it is the most off the wall thing um, that, that I've seen in many years. It is just so, so weird. And I know that I'm probably piquing the curiosity of a lot of people, but when I say that, and I I suspect a lot of people will watch it just because of, of that. Um, And I, I just want to apologize for the rest of the movie, which is like just fine. But um, I I don't know. It's a, it's a, I can't even say it's a fine movie. It's it's a weird weird movie. Uh it it seems like a movie that's cosplaying as a romantic comedy, but it's actually I can't, I can't even describe it, guys. It's it's so so strange. So maybe I will just recommend that you watch Wild Mountain Time, which comes out tomorrow uh by Bleecker Street is releasing this thing. Um we, it's one of those one of those weird weird things that uh I think we're just going to have to have a deeper conversation about later. So uh it's called Wild Mountain Time. Emily Blunt is really good in it. Everything else is um I would say very very hit or miss and uh <laughs> and there's one moment that you'll probably never forget. So uh there's that. Um I also watched a movie called Arch Enemy which was written and directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer. It is his third film. It uh, stars Joe Manganiello as a guy who is named Max Fist, who uh, is living in drunken squalor in the alleyways of a city. And he claims to be a superhero who was transported through another dimension. And he just ends up landing on earth and becoming a drunk because he has like lost his uh he's lost everything. He's he's lost his connection to his home world. And, uh, it's about this teenager who meets this guy and everybody just sort of assumes that he is, you know, the, the town drunk, this crazy guy. Uh, and this teenager meets up with him and starts to maybe believe some of his stories. And there's a whole criminal element where this, this, uh, crime boss played by Glenn Howerton from it's always sunny in Philadelphia is uh lording over the city. And um, Paul shear is in it as this deranged lunatic for, for a little bit. Uh, it's a weird movie. It's a, a low budget comic book movie that does a lot with the limited resources that they have. So I think that's the big selling point here is like, Oh, this is a really creative use of a a relatively small budget and a way to introduce superhero, superhero storytelling to, um, you know, basically a way to, to sort of like sneak, uh, independent film ideas, uh, in and like wrap them in a superhero genre package, um, so I, I didn't love the movie but I definitely appreciated it and and uh admire the way that it it was able to uh, get its messages across um with uh, what are are pretty clearly limited resources. Um Meganola was pretty good in it but uh it, it didn't like light my world on fire or anything uh, but uh um, And
2: did you see the movie Freaks from about 2 years ago? No, I didn't. Is it good? It is good. And I think there's a the whole burgeoning subgenre of these low budget uh grounded character driven superhero adjacent uh movies. It sounds like arch enemy and freaks uh would make a really interesting double feature. So I was going to throw okay. it out there to people listening.
0: Cool. Uh okay, two more things real quick and then I'll be done. Uh David Byrne's American Utopia. Chris uh, recommended this one to me. Um Spike Lee directed this. It's the the uh concert film uh or sort of concert film. It's the the film version of uh David Byrne from the Talking Heads his uh, Broadway show. And um I didn't really get much out of this one um i i am not super familiar with the music of the talking heads and don't really know much about david byrne other than that somebody once referred to him as a live action muppet and that's all i can think of every time i (laughs) every time i see him um but uh yeah i I didn't really this one didn't click with me um i feel like if you know that music and and really love uh david byrne if you have a a, you know a, a previous relationship with him and his music this movie is going to resonate with you in a in a much, much bigger way than it did for me, uh, coming into it completely blind, um, or sort of like under, you know, uh, without any knowledge of, of his, uh, discography, I felt a little, um, behind the eight ball on this one. So, uh, it's, it's a, a well shot movie. Um, and, and I think Chris was talking about like, if you watch this and then watch Hamilton, you'll see how different it is and how, uh, by contrast, Hamilton was sort of poorly directed because the, of the way that the Cameras placed and stuff like that you can tell that this movie is shot by somebody who knows what he's doing um but other than that i i didn't really connect with it on an emotional level so that's uh, david burns american utopia which is streaming on hbo max right now and then finally uh i remember brad talking uh highly about a film called love and monsters which came out earlier this year so i checked that one out um uh Michael Matthews directed this it stars Dylan O'Brien as a guy who's living in the future and after s- like 7 years i think after a uh an asteroid hits the earth and or or is about to hit the earth this chemical fallout from the nukes that americans shot at the to destroy the uh the uh asteroid has basically caused all of the um bugs and, and creatures on the planet's surface to mutate and become these giant, you know, destructive uh, creatures. So humanity goes underground, like 95% of of human life on earth is is wiped out. Um, So this Dylan O'Brien plays this guy who is living in this underground bunker. And he realizes that his, uh, the girlfriend that he had before all of this happened is only you know, uh, something like 80 miles away from him or something like that. So he decides to uh, brave a trip across the surface and uh, go track her down. So it kind of had, um, it reminded me a little bit of Why the Last Man. Um, It had a little bit of those vibes to it. Um, I thought it was a a perfectly fine little movie. I I think... (laughs) it probably would have done pretty well if they were able to actually release this in, in theaters. And I think Dylan O'Brien, who I have, I've still yet to see any of those maze runner movies, even though Jacob, I know you like them a lot. They're good. Um, He's
2: good in them. End of story.
0: Yeah. I, I, so I'm, I think this might've been the first thing that I've seen that had him as the lead in it. And I thought he was uh, charming and, and uh, a perfectly capable uh, lead of a movie like this. Um, Jessica Henwick, who I've seen in, you know, iron fist and, and, she was in Game of Thrones briefly and some other stuff um it plays the girlfriend she was really pretty good as well um Michael Michael Rooker from Guardians of the Galaxy has a small supporting role um I think Brad I remember you talking about how impressed you were with like the visual effects and like the creature design and stuff like that I I agree with that I think you know all of that stuff uh worked well it just sort of felt like a it felt like a slight movie to me and I feel like it's because it debuted in this video on demand way. And, and I'm going to have to get used to not categorizing movies, not dinging movies for the way that they're released because we're living in like unprecedented times. And, and, you know, the future seems to be streaming in a pretty serious way. So, um, I don't know. I think it's just like, this movie is like the felt the brunt of my residual. Um, (laughs) I don't, I don't know what you would call it. Like this, uh, this, uh, quality, um, categorization that I apply to things that came out theatrically and things that were released, you know, straight to video on demand. Uh, this movie sort of feels like of all of the things that I've watched, uh, in the past couple of weeks, this one felt like, the most slight to me, but it's still like a solid, fun little movie. So I, I don't know Brett, if any of that resonates with you. At yeah, all. no, I, I, I can definitely under, understand
1: that. And I, I do think that if this movie was released in theaters, it would have gotten a lot more attention because I think that it probably plays better on on a big screen, as entertaining as it is. But yeah, there, there is something that was weird when I watched this, um, that like it's, it didn't make me feel like it was uh, of lower quality, but it just felt weird to see, the, see it for the first time at home.
0: Mm -hmm. were you gonna say something
3: well not to make this tangent about Dylan O'Brien longer but I think in another world he would have been the next big you know it boy action star if the Maze Runner movies had done well and if he hadn't injured himself while filming those films because he has like that movie star potential and I just want to add that I noted this when I was doing like recaps for Teen Wolf which he starred in uh, way back when I was just like freelancing for USA Today. And um, the, I said that he acted circles around the lead of that show, and the stands of the lead of that show just uh, piled on me and were. Oh, wow. You know, so it was a really interesting experience. doesn't have anything to do with this movie, but Dylan O'Brien, good actor. You
2: know, everything about those of Fun movies is legit. Wes Ball, really good director. Uh, uh, Kayla uh, Scotilario, the co star, fantastic. Dylan O'Brien, really good. Those scripts are nonsense they're ya nonsense but damn it maze runner everything in them is actually really really good ben
0: i actually have a trilogy like the box set of all the maze runner movies and i just haven't gotten around to it yet so um i'll, I'll definitely be checking them out sometime soon jacob i'll, I'll finally report back when i've mentioned yes, this is your newest time. Yeah.
2: you know what as your as your editor ben uh before 2020 oh, is over you're gonna carve out six hours and watch all three maze runner movies report oh man
0: there's still so many more movies I have to catch up on from this year, Jacob.
2: Well, it Jesus. sounds to me like you have a lot of work to do, man. It's all <laughs> awesome. It does. Uh, okay. All right. That's enough for me.
0: Uh, let's go to Jacob. What have you been watching?
2: Oh goodness. Yeah. I've been catching up with a few movies that you've uh, probably already seen like the trial of Chicago seven, uh, Aaron Sorkin's Netflix drama, star studded Netflix drama about the seven liberal activists who were put in trial by the Nixon administration for uh, supposed to be uh, inciting a riot and conspiracy at the 1968 Democratic national convention. It's probably the okayest prestige film of the year. I think Aaron Sorkin's a good writer. I'm one of those people who really enjoys his dialogue, uh, as obnoxious as he himself can be. I just don't think he's a visualist. I don't think he has the kind of nerve or spark behind the camera that pretty much anybody else would have made. And if you look at the people who were going to make this movie for years, it's going to be Steven Spielberg or Paul Greengrass. Two very different directors, but directors with very specific points of view. They shoot films in a way where you mm-hmm. understand who's behind the camera and it informs everything in the frame. Mm-hmm. Whereas Trial of Chicago 7 is a really good witty screenplay that feels like a TV movie in so many ways. It's not that the camera doesn't move, it's that the camera doesn't even have a purpose. It the camera exists so people can say Aaron Togan's dialogue as opposed for Aaron Togan to impose an actual voice on this film. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help that certain actors like Michael Keaton and Mark Rylance are really, really good, giving really strong, subtle, humanistic uh, performances. Whereas you have Sasha Baron Cohen, who's actually also really good, but playing in a very different way. His character never jives with anybody else in the movie. And same with Eddie Redmayne. It, 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 uh, everybody's doing good performances on their own. John Carroll Lynch, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. But I feel like none of them are being directed to be in the same movie. They're all really good, but they're in their own personal vacuums. How does people feel? I, I know we talked about this a few months ago, but now that I've seen it, I can't believe how much of a shrug it is.
1: I see. I I will disagree, um in in part only because I will agree that Aaron Sorkin does not have a unique, um or even like noticeable visual style. It's um he's he's a boring director, but for me the script and the performances were so good that I didn't mind so much. I, I actually almost appreciated that he didn't try to do that because because he he lets the script speak for itself and lets the performances speak for themselves. And even though some of the performances really do feel like full-on acting, I think that it gives it a quality that makes it feel like a classic courtroom drama, like a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or a 12 Angry Men kind of feel. Uh, and so b- because the script is so good, and, and because, like I said, because of those performances, I didn't mind so much the shortcoming of Sorkin as a director.
2: That's fair. Um, it's not a movie I just like. I actually enjoyed watching it. There's enough stuff here that I I can recommend, and there's really shining moments and any movie where john Carroll lynch is one of the seven leads you know take my money because he's one of my mount rushmore of actors you know he belongs up there is like one of the hardest working guys in show business uh but i don't know i feel like just looking at the list of movies coming out in 2020 trial chicago 7 a year ago should have been like one of the movies and i feel like going into oscar season and top 10 list season i feel like it's just kind of vanished into the background now that i finally got around to watching i guess i kind of see why uh hg and ben do do you have anything to say about this one
3: I haven't seen Trial of the Chicago 7, but I want to chime in to say that uh, Steve McQueen does the, the trial like courtroom drama route with Mangrove, which is really, really good. And um, that's part of a small act series that's on Amazon. And um, I would highly recommend that for something that has a very specific and very distinctive visual style in addition to being a riveting courtroom drama.
0: Uh, I kind of feel the same way about it as you do, Jacob. I think um, I, I knew about Spielberg as a potential director. I had no idea about about uh, Paul Greengrass and that one seems somehow more intriguing to me. And I feel like that would have been, especially if Greengrass was able to direct Sorkin's script, that would have been a really dynamite movie. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, it, it kind of like, I, I enjoyed Trial of Chicago 7 while when I was watching it, but I really haven't thought much about it since then. And I don't know if that's, you know, a, the mark of a great film.
2: So, um, yeah. Well, a movie. I liked a lot more, uh, bad education. This was a, uh, made that made a festival run. I think late last year, I think it played Toronto and it was actually picked up by HBO. So it became an HBO original movie, even though it played festivals and therefore is eligible for my movie list. <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my personal cutoff. And this is a movie where it Hugh Jackman plays the superintendent of schools, uh, in this small, uh, New York community. And, there's a discrepancy with his assist, with the assistant superintendent of Alison Janney. And it uncovers this vast conspiracy of uh, people abusing power and money and privileges uh, in this otherwise very squeaky clean, well-respected uh, school district. It's based on a true story. And it's a really unique true crime story. It's sort of, it's, sort of, it's not, you know, murderers uh, uh, or anything like that. It's a conspiracy in the most unlikely place, you know, a, a, a school superintendent's office. And I had a really good time with this movie. It is a really fascinating portrait of a of a sociopath or a psychopath at work in the common wild. I mean... I feel like so often portraits of cinematic psychopaths, especially ones based on real people, lean really hard into ranting and raving and murderers and chainsaws and serial killers. Uh, when, if you research the idea of uh, uh, the, the material psychopaths are very common, they're very common in positions of power and people are often our psychopaths without knowing it. And they live amongst us in ways where they are harming people uh, or in this case are harming people indirectly, not in like maliciously evil, violent ways, but in ways where they think about themselves first and foremost. I think Hugh Jackson performance here is one of my favorite psychopath performances in recent memory because it feels so real. It feels like the mentally ill person you would actually encounter in real life as opposed to a serial killer slasher. And the movies around it is very good. I find it to be very entertaining, sort of a, all the president's men in a set in high school where a crusading student journalist starts unraveling the story, which is actually part of the, of the truth that actually did happen in real life, which makes it even crazier. But Hugh Jackman's performance, uh, that's a real highlight. This is a, he's entered his post-Wolverine, letting himself have some donuts, letting himself look you know, a little aged on screen, uh i'm a big fan of sweaty desperate scheming hugh jackman and i'm excited to see this version of him get unlocked for future use as he gets a little older and doesn't have to be in constant wolverine shape i noticed when he kind of didn't really came and went but it it premiered early enough this year that i don't see it being talked about as much as anyone else on this podcast pro bad education
3: I am definitely pro-bad education, and I think that Hugh Jackman's performance in this is phenomenal, and the movie itself is is really good, too. Like, I like that it paints these characters who are doing pretty abhorrent things, like um, embezzling money from the school, essentially, uh, but paints them in a sympathetic light. Like, they are good teachers, which is the... the the complicated thing about this movie, like they are doing good by the students, but they are also, you know, self-serving and doing this for themselves, and it puts you and the, as the audience member in a difficult position. You sympathize with them, but also they're they're criminals, and it's such an interesting way of approaching the movie. And in addition to being great performances from Hugh Jackman, uh, Allison Janney too is fantastic,
2: and Ray Romano as uh, a school board lead who saw Ray Romano becoming such a reliable, like sturdy character actor, like the Irishman, uh, this, uh, the, um, the big sick, I'm getting to the point where Ray Romano pops up in the movie. And I'm like, Oh yeah. I don't think of the comedian or the sitcom actor. I think of him as a really good supporting actor. What, what a cast. Yeah. Good stuff. So that's on HBO Max, right? Uh, now, think, streaming right? Out. Wherever you watch HBO, that's where Bad Education is. And finally, a movie I want to touch on but not talk about too much because I think the less you know about it going in, the better. That is The Painter and the Thief, a documentary that Ben spoke about a few weeks ago on this very show. It's streaming on Hulu. It is a documentary about a woman whose uh, paintings are stolen and she ends up connecting with the man who stolen them and they, and they have a relationship that develops as cameras roll over several years. And that's all I'm going to say because... Uh, This movie bowled me over. Uh, It is in serious contention for my number one film of the year. I need to see more to finalize it, but it's up there. Uh, It's the best documentary I've seen in a long time. And it's hopeful and funny and strange. And it's the kind of movie where it has to be documentary because if you wrote these characters, you wouldn't believe it. While at the same time, these characters are so recognizably human and you see yourself in so many elements of them. And that's the power of a great documentary film, especially one like this that refuses to have talking heads or refuses to, you know, uh, just have the standard doc format. It's it's a beautifully shot, beautifully made movie where the attention is not only on the subject matter but on the on the actual filmmaking. And I know it's been Neon who released this have picked up the rights to make a you know a, a theatrical remake, you know, a fictionalized remake with actors, but there's really no need. Uh, this is as close to perfect as any movie I've seen in 2020. And if you haven't seen it. Yet, Fire Up Hulu, hit, hit Play, trust me. I really think this is something very special. And thats I know Ben's seen it, uh, but HT and Brad and Chris, if you listen to this, uh, guys, we're going to talk about this movie. And we're going to talk about it a lot uh, as we approach end of year stuff. So get on it. Especially that ending, Jacob, am I right? That ending and the beginning. Uh, I'll say, you well, without spoiling anything, about 15 minutes in, a character sees a painting and he has a reaction. And that's when I realized, when I saw that reaction... This is not an ordinary documentary. This is something special. And I was hooked from that point onward. Yeah, great
0: stuff. Uh, so that's on Hulu right now. It's called The Painter and the Thief. HC, what have you been watching?
3: I was one of the lucky few to see Wonder Woman 1984 early. And um, I am barred from going too deep into spoilers. But this is this movie is such a beacon of hope and joy. Uh, it's a real Balm in this year I feel like because it again doubles down on the compassion the cheesiness of the first movie in a way that follows up with the, the themes of that film too that it makes it um really inspiring and aspirational uh and um just wonderful to watch and uh it reminded me a lot of the Richard Donner Superman movies uh in a very positive way of course there's one specific moment that um uh, you know, move my heart a little bit and uh, we'll draw a lot of comparisons to that. And um, it's, yeah, it's just a, it, it is a little bit over long. It's two and a half hours long and um, it's got a first act that I feel is a little bit, could have been trimmed definitely a lot, um, mostly because it takes a return to Themiscura that feels a little bit like, oh, we really miss Themiscura, right? And uh, they could have just cut that down a little bit because they, they try to use it to sort of hammer in the themes of the movie, but they could have just should have could have just cut it down. But otherwise, uh, Gal Gadot and Chris Pine give this great classic Hollywood winds, windswept romance that um, is just the emotional core of the film in a way that uh, keeps you invested in their relationship as well as the the themes of this film and the messaging it it brings across. And you know, Pedro Pascal is really really hamming it up in this movie, almost to a degree that's that's like over over the top, but he, I won't say he reins it in, but it works for the movie. Um, Kristen Wiig is great. She goes from the the mousy, vil, mousy um, friend to the villain in a transformation that feels similar to Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns, uh, but is a bit more comedic. And I think that her talents are really well served in this role. And uh, it's just a, it's a real great film for this year. So it's coming to HBO Max, uh, infamously, on December 25th, as well as theaters, and uh, I recommend you check it out when it does. H.D.,
2: I have one awesome. question for you about this. I know you can't speak too much, but do you feel that you're that watching it uh, at home, for, in this early screening for select like critics, that it... Do you wish you were watching it on a big screen? You, do you wish that at any point you were, like, saying, this movie suffers because I'm watching it at home?
3: I do wish I could have seen it on the big screen because it, it's so visually stunning again. Um, like, the last like the last film except uh for the third act of the first film um but i think that it coming out this year is very needed so i'm of two minds for that but yeah i really wish i could have seen on the big screen but you know you can if you are if your state is practicing safe covid rules and regulations but uh otherwise i do recommend checking it out at home
0: cool what else you got hd oh
3: i have other movies too (laughs) <laughs> um, I watched She Dies Tomorrow, which uh, debuted on Hulu. This is the movie by uh, Amy Simons, I think. Um, and I was intrigued by this movie And because uh, I think Chris saw it a while ago and he raved about it. It is about a woman uh, who is convinced that she is going to die tomorrow. And um, this conviction starts to spread throughout friends and the rest of the town until like a contagion until everyone is um convinced that this will happen and it's a real existential uh morbid film that uh is very hypnotizing and it it gave me the similar like um, response that I had to uh I'm thinking of ending things in that I wasn't sure whether I liked it or I didn't like it, but I was very entranced by it the entire time. And it is a really fascinating sort of um, examination of that uh, inherent morbidity that people have within themselves that, and kind of makes the idea of depression as a contagious thing, uh, a really intriguing sort of and almost universal sort of premise. And uh, it's, it is a really, it's a fascinating movie, and it's a fascinating experience. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it. I would, I you know, I'll recommend it. It's a really unique and distinctive film, and one that um, has lingered with me since I watched it. So that's She Dies Tomorrow, and it's streaming now on Hulu. And,
0: and you got one more? The
3: last thing I watched is The Call, which is a South Korean thriller film which debuted on netflix it's directed by lee chung hyun and it stars park Hye, who is a pretty famous k-drama actress uh, i don't think you would know her from many films she doesn't do a lot of films that have crossovers into the the west for example but it does, and also stars jun jung so who was in burning and she is the real standout of this film which takes place um between it takes place in this house where this uh, woman in modern day uh, answers a phone call from the the house phone. And it's the same It's a person who was living in that house from 20 years before and is uh, called and is calling in despair, uh, convinced that her mother is trying to kill her. And so these two women start to interact across time and each of them Sort of giving each other advice and uh, trying to save the other from their various circumstances, and uh, it has a really unique twist on the. And what I'm I'm starting to realize is a common sort of uh, fixation for Korean cinema and TV, which is the phone call across time uh, gimmick, <laughs> which is a strange sort of conceit to be uh, to be a common thing. But it's um, it happened in this mid two thousands romantic romantic drama called il mare which ended up becoming adapted to the u.s uh with the sandra bullock keanu reeves movie the lake house and it also is the same conceit in this really popular k-drama from like two years ago called signal and so i'm like this is kind of a strange thing that keeps popping up in korean cinema and tv but you know what it's fine and uh, it it has a real um tense good twist on it very unique twist um that uh happens in like the latter half of the movie and um it's i will say that it's a really great performance by jun jung so the actress from burning she gives a real physical uh almost unsettling performance here uh the movie itself is fine it's kind of a solid thriller if you are into k-horror it's not really on par with like the greatest of k-horror it feels very much like a a film made to appeal to a larger audience, um, like the Netflix audience, for example, and people who are more well-versed in like the K-drama world, but um, I will recommend it for Jun Jung uh, the burning actress who's just really fantastic in this, and the unique premise too. It, it, it's a really enjoyable, uh, solid thriller, and that's The Call, which is now streaming on Netflix.
0: Awesome. Uh, Brad, what else have you? Been uh, just watching?
1: a couple more things. Um, I sat down to watch uh, "Folklore," the Long Pond Studio Sessions, which is which is how you say it because all of the words are lowercase. Um, and so, for those of you that don't know, uh, this is uh, Taylor Swift's new documentary movie that um, premiered on Disney Plus uh, for Thanksgiving weekend. It is um, essentially a one long uh, acoustic. Um, per- performance of her most recent album, Folklore, and then in between performing the songs uh, with those she made the album with, they talk about the inception of of the music and the inspiration for for the lyrics and whatnot. Um, and it's just a very nice, soft, quiet kind of re- relaxing uh, watch. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of Taylor Swift's music in general. I think it's been fascinating to see how she's evolved as an artist, and um, this is one of her. I think most mature albums to date. Um, It's, it's a a very calming sort of, sort of album. And uh, the, the music in it really is just, uh, it's, it's, it's soothing. And to listen to her uh, speak about it is even more fascinating. You get so much more out of the songs after you hear um, her talk about it with her collaborators. And it's, uh, it was just very, very enjoyable. It's definitely longer because they go through the entire album, obviously. So, you know, um, it, it took a, a couple sittings to watch just because it, it also kind of makes you sleepy in a way. Um, but but it is, it is a very uh, lovely exploration of of her, her music. And I, I would love to see more uh, music documentaries like this. You know, I, obviously there are a lot of concert films and there are documentaries that follow artists as they tour and things like that. But I, I would, you know, like a lot more of this because this is almost like a like a high production quality version of like VH1's storytellers uh, in a way, just a little bit more intimate and uh, personal. So yeah, if you, if you like Taylor Swift or even if you're looking for like an an entrance into her work as an artist, I think this is uh, interesting to watch.
0: So that is Folklore at the Long Pond Studio Sessions on Disney. Uh, what else? Uh, and then watching, I also uh,
1: watched uh, Minari, which is um, a new film uh, that is uh, played at Sundance. Um, I guess it's not that new then, but it, it's, it's obviously coming out now uh, around award season. It's, it has a limited release starting this weekend. Uh, it's supposed to get a wide release in February. Uh, it's directed by Lee Isaac Chung, uh, it stars Stephen uh, Yoon from The Walking Dead, also, uh, Hanye Ri and Alan Kim. And this is a movie about a Korean-American family living in uh, Arkansas in the 1980s. They moved to this, uh, what is essentially a modular home in the middle of like uh, a field, essentially, in, in the Midwest. Uh, because um, Steven Yoon's character is trying to start a farm of Korean vegetables and fruits to basically help him and his struggling family uh, realize their American dream of, you know, m- making some money and, you know, creating a place that is their own. And so it's this uh, very quiet, reserved family drama. Um, it, it actually shares some similarities to Nomadland in that way and where the, the performances are not uh, big, but they're very calculated and and quiet and reserved in the way that they're, they're executed by the entire cast. And it's one of those movies that is um, dramatic, but not overly so, uh, it's charming and funny uh, largely because Alan Kim who plays um, the the young boy David in this movie is uh, adorable and the relationship he has uh, with the family's grandmother as uh, played by uh, Yoon yu Jung uh, is wonderful she's a very feisty uh, older woman and she like is encouraging them to play like gambling card games and like loves mountain dew um, and it's just it's a it's a very um, a a wonderful movie and it has a lot of a lot of heart but it's also one that is uh very grounded and has um some powerful drama to it too so it's um it's a much like nomadland it is a a slower burn um but it's it's rewarding in the end i feel like it really is uh it kind of taps into um a similar vein that the farewell did although it's not quite as uh quirky as as the farewell um, so yeah, that's, uh, Minari it's, uh, it'll be in limited theaters, uh, starting December 11th and then you'll be able to see it in a wider release, uh, in February.
0: Cool. All right, guys, we did it. That's a lot of movies and hopefully, uh, a lot of things that people wrote down or or, are looking forward to seeking out for themselves to catch up for uh, the 2020 season. We're going to have our own coverage uh, for end of the year stuff. I think playing out sort of like in in the latter part of December, early January, um, as far as I understand. So uh, keep an eye out for that. We'll probably have more podcasts about top 10 lists. And and then of course our big uh, moments of the year podcast, we'll have that uh, coming up for you guys as well. Um, I think we're going to get back to, something close to a normal more normal schedule in the weeks ahead um so i don't think we're gonna have any more special like full-on water cooler episodes where we devote them all to one topic so uh, if you're wondering what we've been reading and all that kind of stuff. I I think we'll be talking about that uh, more in future episodes. So uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. You can go to slash film.com to read the work that we're putting out every day. There's actually a bunch of Disney related stuff. That's going to be coming out. Uh, you know, as we're recording this later this evening. Uh, so when you're listening to this, you can check that out at slashfilm.com if you want to. You can send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next time.
2: Ben, you're not getting out of this. I'm sorry. It has to happen. Oh boy, Jacob. All right. Hit me. What do you got? Open the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and sharp sharper torts, posts, cost eclipses, and implant put downs by one Lewis A. Safety. And open the page 222. Squelches. I don't even know what that is, but okay. Squelches. Ben. Why don't you blow your brains out? You've got nothing to lose. <laughs> uh, I get it. Uh, HT, why don't you send your wits out to be sharpened? Ha. <laughs> uh, Brad, do me a favor. On your way home, please don't forget the jaywalk. Uh, oh, oh,
0: oh. Is that, oh, is that two weeks that's... in a row where Brad
2: has had a jaywalking related uh, diss from Louis A. Sapien? Louis in, like, A. Sapien just know. gets me. All right, so here's my question for the group. I have one more on this page that I will read, but only if all three of you agree to hear it because it's actually one that could be taken very poorly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, now I guess... I'm more
2: intrigued. So yeah, yeah. Well,
0: God, you
3: know, yes, we you have to. to read to yourself because I'm realizing as the person who reads these insults, you never get to indulge in them yourself. Oh
2: yeah. Okay, then I'll reverse. In. No, this one. I know this one's not a good reverse engineering one, but I'll. Rever- I don't, I'll do all verse for me. Oh goodness. It's hard to do this. Um, (laughs) Jacob, uh, that's not how it works. Let's see. Um, (laughs) you can't remember my name, but my nasty manners are familiar. That's the reversed one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, totally worth it. Love that effort. Okay. Uh, Ben, uh, I'll do this one. I apologize in advance to everybody on this podcast and everybody at home. Let's play Puss in the Corner, Ben. You stay in the corner, and I'll kick you in the puss. Wow. <laughs> wow.
0: Okay, so I guess that's really like old school 1940s lingo. It has there. to be, but yeah.
2: I, 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 feel, I feel very bad saying out loud. <laughs> uh, so look, slash from HR department. Uh, you can give them a call, guys, uh, and I, I will quietly pack up my things and leave. Um,
0: <laughs> All right, until next time.